I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Every fortnight we bring you a mixture of features and discussions exploring every aspect of gardening. Plant care, pest control, garden design, growing your own fruit and vegetables and container ideas. Plus expert seasonal advice on what you should be doing in your garden right now. I'm Tony Dickerson, one of the RHS's team of horticultural advisors based here at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. Coming up in this edition... Hear about the latest research into plant diseases from the RHS Plant Pathology team. We continue our series on gardening essentials for the fruit grower, techniques every gardener should master, and equipment we should all own. Whistler's Deputy Curator Matthew Pottage sheds light on how foliage plants give height, structure, and year-round interest to your garden. And we bring you all the latest news on the RHS Garden events across the country. But first, let's join our RHS experts to hear what jobs they're tackling in the garden right now. Hi, I'm Peter Jones. I'm the team leader here at Wisley. And uh, although we're coming to the end of summer, there's still lots of cool little jobs that you can be getting on with in the garden at home. As we come to the end of summer, um, let's not forget about our containers and our hanging baskets that we've got in our gardens. There's still quite a lot of life and enjoyment that we can get out of them. So keep up with deadheading and uh, don't be afraid to liquid feed your hanging baskets and containers about once a week just to keep them ticking over so you get a nice long season. For those of us that live in the south of the country, we've had a little less rainfall than our friends up in the north. Keep an eye out for any drought-stressed plants we've got in our gardens, especially any newly planted shrubs, which won't have had any time to get any roots out. So if you do find any shrubs or any plants which are looking a little bit tired or stressed out due to the lack of rain, uh, don't be afraid to give them a bit of a drink. It's a good use for any grey water that you might have. So, for example, any used bath water, or if you are lucky enough to have any water still left in your water butts from when we did have some rain. A nice little job to do out in the garden as well is cutting back any foliage on hardy geraniums. At this time of year the first flush of foliage can look a bit tired and old but if you cut that back now you will just see the newly emerging foliage coming up through the centre and it makes the plant look nice and fresh for the remainder of the season. And also planning ahead it's a really good time of year to do any seed collecting if you've got some spare moments. So looking at nigella, calendula, any poppies or aquilegia just to collect some seeds up and start to dry them out ready for sowing in the next spring. Once uh, your seeds are completely dry and free of any remaining frass, uh, nice dry envelopes in, say, a chest of drawers somewhere just to keep them nice and dry until you're ready to use them next year. As we go into the late summer and early autumn, it's a good time of year to think about lawn maintenance and it's a very effective time of year to treat any weeds that you might have in your lawn. 
You can find out more information about all aspects of gardening techniques and plants on the advice pages of the RHS website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash advice. I'm Tony Dickerson and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Plant pathology is the science of plant diseases that either kill or reduce the ability of a plant to survive and produce flowers or fruit. They're caused by microorganisms normally referred to as pathogens, which include fungi, bacteria and viruses. Our plant pathologists work across many aspects of plant diseases and give advice to gardeners on how to control them. They also study the biology and classification of new and important garden pathogens that can affect a wide range of plants, making them unsightly or causing them to die or underperform. Here's one of our plant pathologists, Jenny Denton, to tell us more about the work that the team do and some of their current research projects. My name's Jenny Denton. I work here in the pathology lab at Wisley. Um, We're quite a small team. So we receive samples from RHS members and also from RHS staff and staff from other gardens. And we try to diagnose what the problem is with the plants. So some of the common problems include root rots. So things like honey fungus or phytophthora root rot. And these are often quite difficult for people to diagnose on their own. They will see the symptoms of the upper parts wilting and browning. But actually, the true problem is at the roots. With honey fungus, there'll be creamy fungal matter sandwiched underneath the root bark. And this interrupts the water flow, causing the upper parts to wilt. So... Often people might send us a dead limb or some dead leaves, but actually the problem's down at the roots. Other problems are things like powdery mildew, and we've done quite a lot of research on powdery mildews over the years. A recent paper that's just come out concerns powdery mildew on oak, and there are a number of different powdery mildews that affect oak. But we've then discovered through receiving samples from RHS members that one of the species also affects wisteria. On oak, the symptoms are really quite clear. They're sort of white and powdery markings on the upper surface of the leaf. On wisteria, the powdery mildew is less obvious because it just causes small brown patches to appear. And it's only when you look under the microscope that you see the finger-like protrusions of what are called the conidia fours, which release the spores that fly on wind currents. So the first thing that happens when a sample comes in is we'll examine it and make notes about what we observe. Uh, we might look under the low-power microscopes or the dissecting microscopes to look for structures uh, such as fruiting bodies. These are the bits that, of the fungus that will release the spores. If there aren't any fruiting bodies present, we might incubate the samples in a glass chamber like this one. This increases the humidity and will encourage the fungus to produce spores. Uh, Then we can make slides of those spores and from that we can determine which fungus it is affecting a particular plant. Um, With some diseases such as Phytophthora, um, even seeing those microscopic spores isn't always enough to determine the species. Um, So then we'll use DNA techniques to actually separate uh, the different species out by their DNA. So for instance, here we've got some samples of uh, box stems and leaves that have been incubating and hopefully what will happen is white spores will be produced from the black streaks that are present on some of the stems and you can see some of these 
sort of brownish spots on the leaf material. When they sporulate, we'll see these sort of cylinder-shaped or rod-shaped spores, and that's typical for cylindrocladium, which is also known as box blight. Basically, to damp a sample up uh, or increase the humidity around it, you can use a small glass dish like these with some wet filter paper. Or if you want to um, examine your own samples at home of of box particularly, you can just get um, some kitchen paper, wet it, put it in a sandwich bag with a Ziploc and, and just blow a bit of air in it and keep it at room temperature for a few days. And this should encourage the spores to come out. Interestingly, on the window ledge here, we've got a a heuchera plant and we've currently got a project running on heuchera rust down in our research facility in Wisley Village but whilst looking for the rust we also found a brand new species of powdery mildew so this is the new species on the leaf here you can see all the white dusty coating and it's just starting to produce its resting spores Um, These ones uh, look like small brown balls um, and they've got long protrusions coming out which help to stick them onto the plant material and help them to survive on the dead leaf litter over the winter. Um, They're called the casmathesia and inside them in the spring these crack open and release a little sack with lots of tiny spores inside this sack. Um, And these will fly off in the air currents and then start a new infection the following year. Powdery mildew is very common in the UK, but it is interesting to know which hosts different species of powdery mildew might be affecting, because this will help you know what to replant with if you're having a problem with that in your garden. Powdery mildews in particular affect plants which are drought stressed at the roots and so increasing the watering will help in the first instance. You might also want to pick off the the worst affected leaves before those resting structures are formed. Obviously here in the lab we want to examine those resting structures to get an exact identity of of the fungus but at home it would be best to remove those so that the fungus doesn't carry over to the next year. Now, garden design. Often when people are thinking about designing ornamental garden borders, they focus on flowers. But as deputy curator of RHS Garden Wisley, Matthew Pottage explains, you can create stunning effects with colour, structure and architectural interest by using foliage plants alone. I want to talk to you a bit about our foliage garden and how we've put that together. It's, it's now in its third year, I think, it's third summer, and things are starting to knit together and we're starting to get the layers and the textures that we really set out to achieve in there. And when you're looking at putting foliage displays together, we've really kind of homed in on some key principles, and that's for contrast. So that's plants that actually complement each other rather than blend into each other. The all-important layering, so your ground cover, your lower mid layer, your upper mid layer, and a small tree layer, and even the canopy above that if you have the space. And also the actual composition of the textures and the leaf shapes. So again, it's looking at things which are going to contrast and show each other off. So in the foliage garden itself, We've tried to use quite heavily variegated plants in the shadier spaces. We've tried to use greenery on the walls to show plants off. So when you put them in front of that green backdrop, they stand out. And within the layers, we've tried to use different leaf shapes and different textures. So in one example, we've got the lovely small variegated euonymus ground cover with its tiny little leaves here. And then that's underneath quite a formal pyramid of a U. 
and Texas Baccata. But around that, just a slightly larger height, is the fluffiness and quite large leaf, actually, of the hostas, which are wandering around about this. And we've put the variegated hosta next to this plain blue hosta, so it's not overkill of variegation, and there is a contrast there. And then rather interestingly, just floating above that is this Elanthus, and it's Elanthus red dragon. It's the red form of the tree of heaven. And that we'll keep stooled, so we'll hard prune it in late springtime. And we'll only ever have that for its smaller, kind of shrubby look. And it will give these quite big, red, interesting leaves. And also, when you're looking at foliage, think of the textures and how the leaf surface reacts to things like water. So the hostas and also the stooled cotinus over here have got this quite leathery, almost like a waxy layer. And when the rain droplets sit in that, they're also really pretty. So think of that. And also think about in the winter time what the frost will sit on. So we've got some conifers in here and the frost is going to look good on those in the winter time when all the hostas have gone to sleep. And just think about throughout the year what's going to give you that season of interest what's going to be the main thing because we know in spring and early summer here the hostas are fantastic and we have a lot of those but as we look to later in the year the hostas go a lovely yellow color and that's fine but it is in the winter months when we rely on our evergreens or things which will just hold on to their leaves so we've got these Quercus dentata cultivar named Carl Ferris Miller which has this very big leaf and we're hard pruning those again and those hang on to those dead leaves for most of the winter time so you have that all-important texture again which will just give you something to look at and also we've got some larch in here and it's a larch that again we're going to keep small we're going to prune that but it's got the lovely cones which stay on the branches in the winter time so even though you may not think that's directly foliage related it brings that all-important winter interest because we know a lot of foliage plants are going to be evergreen in the winter months and it's just that extra dimension and also if you've got walls or you've got trellises mix up your climbers with evergreen and non-evergreen climbers just so again you're not completely lost without any colour or any interest in those winter months there may be situations where you may not have a wall or you may have something like a hedge where we are one quarter hedged in this garden and we've got an evergreen hedge in here and it's very important that we don't just put plain evergreens in front of that because they're going to have no impact whatsoever and in front of this very green backdrop we've put Cornus controversa variegata that's the variegated wedding cake tree and that is only of a small tree it's more of a large shrub but that is very very pronounced very very striking when placed in front of a green backdrop so do think of variegated foliage even if you think mm, variegation is not always my thing that's when it can be really really useful in front of those evergreens and then looking up higher above our shrub layer we've got small trees in here we've actually got uh, the rather exotic looking trachycarpus fortunii which is one of the hardy palms and again we're just talking leaf contrast leaf uh, shape and that's a lovely big fan-like leaf and that just gives something a bit different as you're looking up and we don't have another layer above that in the wall garden here it's quite small but if we had another layer above that I'd want something to contrast that trachycarpus so probably the opposite of what it is it's a very big leaf so I'd be looking at something with a much smaller leaf perhaps something like a birch which is quite airy fairy I want to say I'm sure you know what I mean when you've seen a birch tree it's quite wispy and lets the light and the air through and we could choose a cut leaf birch cultivar to contrast that and it's just all about just thinking what you have 
thinking the next layer, thinking about the plant's neighbour, thinking about a contrast to what's there. And if you can use a different colour or a different evergreen deciduous partnership, you're going to constantly increase your year-round interest and increase that all-important contrast. You'll find out more on garden design at rhs.org.uk forward slash design. Now to our regular series of discussions of garden essentials, equipment and techniques to help you get the best performance from your plants, whatever the size of your garden or growing space. In the last edition, I joined Bernard Boardman in the orchard at RHS Garden Wisley to discuss the essentials of growing your own fruit. Now we continue our discussion and look at some of the tools you need to get the most from your fruit garden. I'm Bernard Boardman and I work in the orchard and look after the vineyard and I'm a member of the fruit, veg and herb team here at Wisley. And today we're here outside the office, thankfully, a beautiful day in the fruit uh, gardens here at Wisley and we're talking about some of the essential equipment that perhaps the keen fruit grower will actually want to uh, make sure they've got to hand. Today we're looking at equipment for working at height and Whenever that's uh, on the agenda, then safety is uh, top of the list. And um, we're starting off now with this uh, peculiar-looking ladder, Bernard. Now, I don't think we see these in a DIY superstore. Uh, no, I, I suppose the more specialised you get, then the more specialised equipment that you need and you do have to hunt through the gardening catalogues to find this design of ladder. But in the... Uh, fruit growing fraternity they are actually quite a common sight uh, we're looking at a very light aluminium ladder but uh, unlike your domestic um, four-footed uh, decorating ladder you'll see that this one's only got three feet and uh, we've got two two in a fairly sort of conventional ladder shape which uh, which flare out at the bottom so you get a much wider bottom step and gradually the steps narrow in as you get um, nearer the top. This one's about six foot tall, but we do have them. We've got one that's about uh, 12 is double this, probably more. They think they, you can get them up to 18 or 20 feet tall. And of course, those of you who have seen old film footage or looked in old gardening books, you'll see people... Uh, picking cherries just up a conventional ladder would sort of right to the top of a huge tree and that certainly would be frowned upon now I think but back to our aluminium ladders we've looked at the front two feet and it's got a third foot which is hinged on a leg that's hinged from the top and that's all to stop it overextending itself there's a pretty um, hefty bit of chain here and you have to use the ladder with that chain tight and it won't go anywhere. If we look at this ladder, the, the, the essential point is that the leg provides a, a third point here, incredibly stable, even if you were slightly overbalanced or whatever, uh, this is unlikely to, to topple over. A very wide spacing there between the, the actual feet and the, the third leg. The problem with domestic ladders and steps is that uh, they're not really designed, certainly steps for working at any great height, and they don't have a great deal of stability. Um, anyone who's done a bit of decorating at home will be very aware of that. And uh, really, uh, if once you get even a short distance off the ground, 
um, they're totally unsuitable. Similarly, uh, ladders themselves, if you're decorating an outside wall or whatever, again, you would normally have someone on the bottom of the ladder and hopefully a, a device to hold the, the ladder in place. But again, they're not really designed for the sort of complicated work that uh, people may have to do at height where they're pruning, whereas uh, these uh, pruning ladders um, designed not just for pruning fruit, um, they're also very useful for hedge work and so on, anywhere where you need to have a stable platform so that if you're off the ground, you can be assured that it's not going to topple over. Yes, these ladders are very, very stable. We have our own guidelines for use. Uh, we wouldn't go up them if it was a very windy day. And you'll see that the single leg is also an adjustable leg. So if we're on uneven ground, if you're working on a slope, you could adjust that to suit so that it would keep the ladder at a very good angle. You'll also notice that we've got the top two steps marked off with a bit of tape. So this is a no-go zone for us. Anybody who comes to work with us in the orchard, we give them instructions on the ladder use and we tell them, don't go above this height. These ladders are in use for a considerable part of our fruiting year because we use them right through the winter when we're pruning and then we start to use them again when we're harvesting. Uh, if you've only got one or maybe two trees to harvest at home and the fruit's high up and you don't want it to waste, it might be worth considering using one of these little basket pickers. Sometimes you'll find them listed in catalogues just as fruit pickers or whatever, and as the name implies, they're a little basket, they can be of net or whatever. They will have usually a metal hoop to which that net is attached. Some of them, the basket part is actually plastic, and the best ones often have a little flange inside the hoop, which you can actually get up around the fruit stalk and then gently pull it away. And as Bernard says, if you've only got the one or two trees and you certainly don't want to work at height, they certainly are an option and they do enable you to harvest the fruit without too much damage. So I haven't used um, a picking basket, but I can see that they would be very, very handy bit of kit if you want to keep your feet on the floor. And uh, so the, these ladders are quite specialised and, and therefore they're expensive. So the basket on a stick might be the answer. And I guess it, for this sort of professional equipment, again, if listeners get on the internet and look at tripod ladders or fruit picking ladders, they'll come to examples of this, because unfortunately these are not the sort of thing you're going to find in your typical garden centre. Again, you can find out more information on all aspects of gardening on the RHS website. Here you can also find links to our archive of RHS Gardening podcasts so you can catch up on any episodes of our Gardening Essential series that you might have missed. rhs.org.uk forward slash podcasts. We're almost out of time on this edition of the RHS Gardening podcasts, but before we go, here's some ideas for days out for all the family at our four RHS gardens. Join us at RHS Garden Rosemore in Devon on the 28th of August for an introduction to Rosemore's edible forest garden. Learn more about the basic principles of the forest garden, how it was created, what the future plans are, and more about the individual plants that have been used. Tickets cost £12 for members and £22 for non-members. Learn how to video with your DSLR at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey on the 6th of September. Join experienced shooter Adrian Davis for an introduction to this fascinating topic using digital cameras. 
Following classroom-based session, practical sessions will be held around the garden to produce video clips, which will be edited together to produce a 30-second Flavour of Wisley video. Booking is essential. Discover the secrets of summer propagation on the 10th of September at RHS Garden Hyde Hall in Essex. Learn how to take semi-ripe cuttings and collect seeds to sow and store. With a bit of luck, you'll have a selection of Hyde Hall plants to take home and enjoy for years to come. Places are limited, so be sure to book early. Do your potatoes and tomatoes suffer from blight? Why not join us for an RHS Advice Day? Blast the blight on the 19th of September at RHS Garden Harlow Car in North Yorkshire. RHS advisory experts will be on hand to offer practical advice on how best to protect your potatoes and tomatoes from blight. This informative talk and demonstration will include a practical session using a specially prepared blight bed containing blight attack potatoes and tomatoes to demonstrate the signs and effects of blight. 10am to 2pm, normal garden admission applies. As always, details of all these events and more can be found on our website at rhs.org.uk forward slash gardens what's on. So that's all for this RHS Gardening Podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight when RHS experts will be tackling more of your gardening questions. Until then, remember to follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS and like us on Facebook. For now, from me, Tony Dickerson, and all here at RHS Garden Wisley, goodbye. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.